0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. In this episode, I'm joined by Kay Allison. Kay is the founder of Juicy AF, a program designed to help women live their best alcohol-free lives. This is a little bit of a different topic than others we've covered on the show, but it's an important one nonetheless, both personally and professionally. Alcohol dominates so much of our social interactions as adults, and it is a main element in many of our workplace events. You know, It's hard to think about going out to an event or, or going out to some kind of social activity and having there not be alcohol there. It's, it's more the exception than the rule once we hit a certain age. One of the reasons I wanted to have her on is it's always helpful to examine our habits once in a while to see if they're still serving us or to see if we need to make adjustments in some way. For anyone who's thought about cutting back on alcohol or taking a break from alcohol or really any other habitual behavior, this is a great episode for you. And just because Kay works with women does not mean this is an episode only for women or just because we're talking about alcohol does not mean this is only about alcohol. Again, anyone who wants to take a look at their habits to see which of them is serving them and which of them are not, there's something in here for you. Because we often tell ourselves these stories about who we are and why we do the things we do, and it can be hard to stop and tell ourselves a different story. It can be a little scary to go out into the world and behave in a different way, and and Kay is here to help with that. So without further ado, here is Kay Allison. Kay, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, O'Brien. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Uh, this is interesting. We got connected, and I had not thought about this as a topic for this show. And when I initially saw your name, I was I was a little hesitant. But as I thought about it, I I do think it's so relevant. And so the topic we're going to talk about today is alcohol. And you know, it's very much a personal topic, but at the same time, alcohol is pervasive throughout the business world, throughout all the different. Not Maybe not all the different interactions we have, but a lot of the interactions we have, the way we socialize, the way we communicate, the way we bond and come together in companies often involves alcohol. And so I think this is a really interesting conversation. It's also interesting coming at the time that it's coming in my life because I have two young children and just to maintain my energy level with kids getting up at 530 in the day and trying to get morning workouts in and everything, I'm actually two and a half months into being dry, just because I find that it kills my energy on the weekends. And so I'm doing this little experiment with myself. So all that to say, the world has aligned to kind of put us together for this conversation. And I'm very excited. What is Juicy AF and how did it come to be?
1: Juicy AF is my latest company. I am a serial entrepreneur And it is a mastermind for super high-achieving women who are alcohol-free. It's a course for women who are trying to get alcohol-free, who are sober curious in today's nomenclature. (laughs) And it's also a community for women in either one of those camps. And it came to be because... Back in 1999, which is kind of ancient history at this point, but in 1999, I was a senior vice president of a global ad agency, traveling around the world and driving a shiny, fancy foreign car and thinking that I looked like I had it all together. When in reality, I was finishing off at least one bottle of wine, probably at least four nights a week, and got to the point in my drinking where I realized that the person that I was actually was in direct conflict with the woman that I wanted to be. And so I went alcohol-free on August 9th of 1999. So I've been doing this for about a lifetime. And what I've realized is since the pandemic, There are so many people whose relationship with alcohol has become a problem.
0: What was it for you, if you're okay sharing your story, you know, what was it for you that made you give yourself that honest assessment? You know, I think everybody has different stories, you know, everyone that I've listened to who is alcohol-free now has some kind of story, some hit rock bottom, some didn't. You know, some just looked in the mirror and said, all right, I think I need a change. What what was it for you?
1: I had been, I would say, sober curious or realizing that I didn't like the consequences of my drinking and wondering what to do about it for probably six, eight months before I actually stopped for good. What happened that night was I had specifically set out to not drink. I was going to drink Diet Coke because I had a lot of friends in to celebrate a birthday. And the waiter came around one too many times and asked me if I would like a glass of champagne. And finally, by about 1030, I was like, oh, one isn't going to hurt that little lie. And my kids, my older kids who were then nine and 16 had to undress me and put me to bed a couple hours later. And I woke up the next morning with my typical hungover remorse and shame, but that morning I also had an added ingredient, which was clarity. Because being a mom and a great mom and showing up for my kids and being a role model for my kids is integral to my sense of self-esteem. And I realized that who I was and how I was actually behaving was diametrically opposed to the kind of mom that I held myself as being. And that was the end, I was done.
0: Yeah, it's amazing to me I love reading stories or listening to stories of people who have either well, I'll just say people who've made major changes in their lives. So people who lost a hundred pounds or who stopped drinking or, you know, whatever, changed big patterns in their lives. And it's always interesting. It's it's always different, but it's always something just very personal. And I remember reading one story of a, a guy who had lost, I think, over 150 pounds. And he said that one of his nephews just poked his stomach that one day. And just said, Oh, that's squishy. And that was it. And it was just, it was that one little innocent thing that prompted him to totally rearrange his whole life in a, a positive way. And so I just think it's interesting to share those stories. You had said that the you woke up with clarity because being a good mother and capable mother was part of what gave you self-esteem. Had you done any of that kind of reflective work? Leading up to that, or did you just like wake up with that epiphany?
1: Oh, I had been in therapy for years. <laughs> um, you know, I've always been attracted to personal growth programs and books, and I had a meditation practice. It's not that I wasn't self aware, denial is such a strong mechanism that it just obliterates. Any sense of reality. It's a very strange thing to experience. It's kind of like being under a spell, you know, like Sleeping Beauty, right? Who was inexorably drawn to touch the spindle on the end of the spinning wheel, even though she'd never seen one before. That's what it feels like to be addicted to something. And I I also want to say that you don't have to hit rock bottom in order to rethink a habit that you're in or a pattern that you're in. I truly believe that once it stops working for you, you can quit anytime. This insistence that we have to hit rock bottom. Doesn't serve anybody, in my opinion. And it's really easy. It was really easy for me, O'Brien, because I didn't have a DUI. I hadn't lost custody of my children. I didn't have any of the major consequences that a lot of people have before they decide to stop drinking. What I was looking for was. I wanted to drink the way I wanted to drink, but I didn't want the consequences. Unfortunately, that is not a thing. <laughs> you know that's that does, it doesn't works. work that way.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's. Uh, I was listening to a podcast this morning where he was either a neurologist or some kind of neuroscience expert was talking about the difference between doing the things you think make you happy and the things that actually make you happy. And you know, alcohol definitely falls into that. There's, you know. Alcohol, sugar, pornography, you know, any number of things that sort of give you the illusion of happiness. But the things that actually make us happy are the things that maybe require a little more hard work, a little more suffering, which is counterintuitive to what we might think.
1: So there's this concept of having a tired decider. So research from Cornell shows that we make 30,000 to 35,000 decisions every single day from how much toothpaste to squeeze on your toothbrush to, you know, whether to wear headphones or not, like whatever, uh, 30,000. And what happens is that our deciders get tired by the end of the day or the end of a week. And the tired decider chooses what feels good in the moment, not what you've intended. So that's why people don't start their diets on Friday night They start their diets on Monday mornings. And over the course of of a normal week, we probably eat the best Monday morning. And our vigilance towards that erodes over the week to the point where it's pizza and beer by Friday night. Same thing happens with drinking that if we are making up rules about when we can drink, with whom we can drink, what we can drink, At home, out of home, only white, you know, only white wine, none of the brown liquor, only beer, whatever your rules are. When your decider gets tired, the rules are going to go out the window. Quite frankly, it is easier to make a 100% commitment to being alcohol free than it is a 99% kind of decision.
0: Yes. So you've said a lot there. And I want to go back and kind of tease this apart. The first thing I want to define is maybe some of the terms for people because I don't I don't want to get so far down this path talking about what people would normally deem alcoholism, you know, or being an alcoholic, and have listeners if they haven't tuned out already say, "Well, I'm not an alcoholic; this doesn't apply to me." Because you mentioned earlier that there are plenty of people out there who are, you know, air quotes, sober curious and thinking about this, and I've read a lot of articles about that phenomenon and how. Many people have actually stopped drinking over the last three to five years. And so let, let's just define some terms. So, what does it mean to be an alcoholic? And it, is that the way we should be thinking about that term? Or there, is there some replacement that we need to be thinking about?
1: I particularly do not like the term alcoholic. There is no clinical definition of what an alcoholic is. If you look in the diagnostic, you know, the DSM that psychologists use to diagnose mental health issues. The term alcoholic does not exist in there. Secondly, it connotes being a bum under a bridge, drinking something out of a paper bag. And so I find that that term is just not helpful. It's why I describe myself as being alcohol-free I also don't love the word sober because it sounds like sober like boring, right? So boring. It sounds terrible. And I like alcohol-free because it's not only freedom from alcohol, it's freedom to create a really abundant life.
0: And so if somebody we think has a drinking problem in our lives and we and we want to confront them because they have an issue with alcohol or with any substance, What are the ways that we should approach that language?
1: So I have found four things to be true for people that have problems with, whether it's an eating disorder or gambling or drugs or alcohol, four four things to be true. One is once you start, you can't stop or you can't stop reliably. So I could stop sometimes, but I couldn't count on the fact that I could stop so once you start, you can't stop. It's like missing, and it's like missing a brake in your car. Once you turn it on and you keep, you start going. There's no brake. It's a very strange sensation.
0: Would that also be you can't stop as soon as you want to? Because I think that's a problem for a lot of people when they drink too. They go out and they say, "Well, you know, I'm just going to go out. I'm going to have two or three," and they have six. You know, and they're not like fall down, you know, can't undress themselves drunk, but they're pretty drunk. and so like it seems like that's a more a, maybe a more common problem where somebody just is going out and they're saying, "Oh, I'm just going to have a few because I got to do something in the morning," and then they wake up with a hangover because they had more than they wanted to
1: absolutely, you know i had a I have a friend who says it's not the caboose that kills you. In other words, it's the first drink that gets you. It's not the sixth. It's not the fifth or sixth.
0: I like that. I'm sorry. And what? So what you said, so that was the first, and then you said there were three more.
1: So the second is, once you stop, you always start again. So I would wake up in the morning and say, oh, my God, I'm never doing that again, only to find myself doing that again, yet again, and wondering what the heck had happened. I thought very conveniently that, again, air quotes, I had changed my mind, but what I found was that's really a hallmark of, of an addiction. And then the third is, if you think about alcohol more than you think about what you had for lunch yesterday, it's occupying a little bit too much brain space.
0: That's, yeah, that's a good one. And these are good for anything, for any kind of abuse or addiction.
1: Well, and it doesn't even have to be abuse or addiction. We all create mechanisms to cope with anxiety or depression or stress. And any of these good coping mechanisms can become harmful if taken to the extreme. Working out is a great way to cope with stress, unless you're working out so hard and never giving your body a rest that you're getting injured, right? So, Anything that's a coping mechanism when taken to an extreme can be harmful. But I think this last one is, you know, when your sense of who you are as a human being and what gives you essential self worth doesn't match what you're actually doing when you are using whatever substance or whatever coping mechanism, then, you know, you got a bit of a problem. If when you, have a bad experience. Alcohol is involved 100% of the time. Alcohol may be a problem for you.
0: Curious now with sort of that framework, what you're seeing in the world and what you've seen in the world over the last two and a half years, especially through the pandemic. On the one hand, you read articles about less uh, millennials and gen zers drinking than other older generations but on the other you read articles about the spike in alcohol sales and the struggles that people are having with mental disorders or you know just being down or depressed or anxious through the pandemic so what what trends are you seeing as far as alcohol consumption goes
1: right now i am seeing a trend towards people drinking less or experimenting with giving it up for dry January, sober October. And I think it is both those things together, O'Brien. During the pandemic, like in March and June of 2020, research shows that 60% of Americans were drinking more than they had been. 60%, that's a lot. And many of them said that they had at least one episode of what would be qualified as binge drinking over the preceding two weeks. So definitely alcohol consumption was up. At the same time, we know that the young adults that are 18 to 25 years old right now are drinking 20% less than older generations did when they were in that same age group. So both of those things are driving an increase in interest in and availability of non-alcoholic beverages, non-alcoholic wines and beers and teas and spirits. Back when I was in New York this last weekend, there's a whole store that is a non-alcoholic beverage store. And I'm not talking about Coke and Pepsi and that kind of stuff. I'm talking about aperitifs and spirits that are non-alcoholic.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And I've I've noticed that those have come on the market as well. And as I've gone through the last few months, I have been playing around with different non-alcoholic beers. I actually, for the last few years, I have as I've cut my alcohol intake back with the kids until finally saying, you know what, I think I need to just see how I do without any. So that brings up another interesting segue into the difficulty for people to stop. And It feels like the hardest thing about alcohol is that it has this weird grip on us that like a lot of other habits of ours don't have. Like somehow it has gotten into like the fabric of the culture and there's like masculinity that comes with drinking and there's like social approval that comes with it. And it's a, it's like trying to, it's trying to trick us to continue to drink in many ways. And the story that we tell ourselves about. Well, this is a social interaction. And so this is what we do to be social. This is what we do to have fun. This is what we do to relax. Like Alcohol has somehow become this foundational thing to relax, to have fun, to be social, to, to connect with other people. And yet it, like it, it doesn't need to be. How do, you, how do you help people get rid of that story in their head? Because I, th- I feel like that's the hardest part. It's been the hardest part for me. And I, I've talked to other people, and it seems like it's the hardest part for them, too.
1: Absolutely. Even when I was at the height of my drinking, I thought that a life without alcohol was going to suck. <laughs> yeah. I just thought it was going to be terrible. Shades of gray, going to the library for fun on Saturday night, or you know, being wrapped in saffron robes, handing out poppies at the airport or, you know, I I just thought it was going to be horrific. I thought I was going to have no friends and it was not appealing to me at all. And if you look at some of the communications about sobriety or recovery, alcohol recovery, they're very serious (laughs) which is why I, by intent, have made Juicy AF like a double entendre and full of color and inviting people in to have experiences and find their joy and find their connections. Because my experience is my life since I've gotten sober, has been so bountiful. I mean, I increased my income by a multiple of six in a number of years. I met and married and am madly in love with my husband of 21 years. I've traveled around the world. My my life has been a kaleidoscope of color and adventure and mystery and, you know, so much learning and so many rich experiences. What I really want to do is invite people into that world rather than shaming or shoulding or making it seem like it's deprivation.
0: That's a great reframe of that because I would, I had not thought of it that way, but that makes total sense. You know, we talk about, I mentioned earlier, sort of the the sham happiness. It does, alcohol does sort of fill your life with sort of a sham sense of experience when really what it's doing is it's zapping your energy. You know, yeah, maybe it gives you that initial high, but you're not remembering what you're doing as clearly, even if you're not blacking out, you're not remembering as clearly the memories that you have made. You're waking up with less energy the next day to be productive on the things that you want and need to do. And then it's you know, it becomes sort of the only social avenue you have and you miss out on a bunch of other opportunities to do a bunch of fun things.
1: It's a question of short-term and long-term. There's a temporal aspect to everything you just said. Was I uncomfortable on a Friday night not going out and drinking? Yes. Short-term, I was really uncomfortable. Long-term has... Has it meant a beautiful, abundant, colorful life? Absolutely. The question is really: Are you willing to endure some short-term discomfort for long-term abundance?
0: I bring him up on here all the time because I I really like the way he thinks. But Jocko Willink, who's you know a kind of a famous personality, talks about discipline equals freedom you know, just a little bit, a few decisions the right way on a consistent basis lead to actually more freedom and more opportunity. We think it's the opposite. We think it's going to restrict us, but it actually creates all kinds of opportunity for us.
1: In this particular case, again, I say 100% commitment to being alcohol-free for a given period of time Can allow someone the experience of what it feels to not only be clear and detoxed physically, but also clear and detoxed mentally and emotionally.
0: So, again, you're setting me up with these segues. And I know you and I have both listened to and talked about the Huberman Lab podcast episode, where Dr. Andrew Huberman goes really deep into alcohol. And I would suggest. Anyone who's listening to this go listen to that because he's gonna talk about the science of alcohol and how it affects your body in a very detailed way but that that's also accessible but for for our show here, what are the effects of alcohol like what's happening in your body when you drink because I think you know it's really easy to listen to like well you shouldn't drink because you wake up with less energy and somebody goes like okay boomer or, like whatever like okay, you boring sober person like you go sit in the corner and you have no fun, you know, again, because that's the image that gets painted. But what is what is actually happening in the body when you drink alcohol?
1: The information in that podcast that blew my mind was that these physiological changes happen with as few as seven drinks a week, seven drinks a week. And, yeah, not and at he, one time, just no. over
0: the course of a week, doesn't matter how many you drink.
1: Or in what pattern? It could be one a night, it could be three on Friday and four on Saturday, but a total on average of seven drinks a week appears to change your physiology in very specific ways. And part of it is because alcohol is both fat-soluble and water-soluble, so it penetrates every system and every cell in your body. One of the facts that I found so interesting is that drinking habitually like this, regularly, like we just said, seven drinks a week, can actually long-term, longer-term, cause you to be more impulsive. And as you're more impulsive, guess what you do? You drink more, right? And so it just becomes this insidious spiral that is surprisingly difficult to get yourself out of
0: yeah those were the pieces that struck me too, and the just the cognitive decline that can happen from when you think about it a fairly low amount of alcohol you know i I was in a fraternity in college, we drank a lot of beer, and it sort of built the routine and the lifestyle that you know maybe Thursday night maybe you waited till Friday, but Friday and Saturday at least you know you were going out and having fun. And drinking to get a buzz on, which would take more than seven beers over two days, and so, and then that that continues. And I think the patterns continue even if the alcohol level comes down. To get to seven drinks a week for a lot of people is pretty easy. The the number seven seems a lot because you think, well, I'm not going to sit down and drink seven drinks right now. But over the course of a week, if you are consistently drinking that amount. Yeah, I mean it's it's having long-term impacts and and he was saying that you need to you need to be alcohol-free for 3 to 6 months if not longer to reverse those effects. And I don't I know don't know anyone who stops temporarily for 3 to 6 months. It's usually a month, you know, sober October if you're following Joe Rogan or dry January or whatever, but very few people take 3 to 6 months off.
1: That's very true. I also found that statistic how even that little level of drinking is related to increased incidence of cancer, specifically breast cancer, to be pretty shocking.
0: So I'd encourage everybody again to go listen to that podcast because it will will change the way you think about alcohol. I sent it to my mom. She and I have never had a conversation about drinking being a problem or stopping drinking or anything like that. But I just sent her, I said, I think you'd find this interesting. And she just texted me back two days later. I don't think I'm ever drinking again.
1: (laughs) Well, so the point about seven drinks a week, how many glasses of wine do you think are in a bottle?
0: Think, well, I believe it's four and a half.
1: It's five and a half.
0: Five and a half. Okay.
1: I mean, to me, it was like three good glasses, you know? I mean, it's kind of shocking. So, seven drinks is not even a bottle and a half of wine spread over the course of a full week.
0: So, how how do you how does Juicy AF help people retell that story to themselves? Like, how do you help people through that anxiety, especially at the beginning, if they want to cut this out? Because Stopping for three months, let alone one month, let alone even just going out one time, you know, can be hard. And it's and that first time especially is probably the hardest. So, how do you help people through that stress of that situation?
1: I teach them different ways to handle sticky social situations. Like, and that can be as simple as, hey, what do you want to drink? When you've just cut out alcohol, it's the hardest question on the SATs, and you didn't prep. And so I always suggest that people have two or three stock responses for what do you want to drink? What can I get you? Most people who have cut out drinking are terrified of this question. Why aren't you drinking? And I have to tell you, in 23 years of not drinking, I think I've been asked that question a grand total of three times. But, And it seems weird to me that alcohol is about the only drug that you have to justify not taking. But to your point about how interwoven it is into our society, it is what happens. So if somebody asks me, well, why aren't you drinking? I say, oh, I'm alcohol-free tonight. Or just don't feel like it tonight. Or my very personal favorite, when I drink, my clothes fall off.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Have some fun with it.
1: Absolutely. Like you don't need to give anybody justification. You can be lighthearted or very succinct and direct. No, thank you. Not tonight.
0: Yeah. And I found for myself that I actually enjoy that non-alcoholic beer, even though it doesn't, you know, people are going to complain about the taste. Fair. Doesn't taste great. Although there are some specialty ones now. There's some IPAs, some wheat beers and things like that, that do actually taste pretty good. But even your like run of the mill O'Douls, I, I find for me, having it, having a beer in my hand, a non-alcoholic beer in my hand, Gives me the social buzz that I was looking for anyway, except I can walk out the door and get in my car and drive home.
1: I also encourage, like, I only work with women. So I encourage the women that I work with to get a sparkling water with some cranberry juice in it and a wedge of lime and something that in a pretty glass or a mocktail and be set with that early and get it themselves, order it themselves, tell the bartender that's what you want to be drinking the rest of the night. Get yourself set up so that it doesn't even come up in conversation with people.
0: Well, I, I mean, so it's one thing to get it come up in conversation, but I actually, I, I had heard somewhere, I don't know where to attribute this to, that a lot of the buzz that we feel when we're out, socially drinking a lot of the the energy lift that we get is actually the environment it's not the alcohol and i remember being in college and i had a test the next day but it was i can't remember what the situation was but there was like some big party at a bar on on a thursday night and i had a test on a friday and i it was a big test i said i'm not gonna have anything to drink but i'm gonna go to the party and i was there for a couple hours and i left to walk home stone cold sober. And I walked out the door feeling tipsy. Like I I walked out the door and was like, I feel drunk. And it took about halfway home before it like started to wear off. And I started to feel myself again. And I was like, wow, that's an interesting experience. Like it was the music and the conversation and the yelling and the, you know, everything that goes on in a bar that had created that sense. It wasn't actually the alcohol i had had to drink.
1: My husband threw an amazing party for me a few years ago and the head of the venue said, Yeah, the best things for a great party, it's the right people, it's the right wine, and it's the right conversation. I'm like, Well, it's gonna be completely alcohol-free. And he kind of, you know, rolled his eyes. And then the day after the party, he was like, Your friends are crazy. You don't need alcohol. We're <laughs> dancing and we're doing photo booths and Anyway, we were all wearing blue-haired wigs. It was just a blast and a half. But you're right; like the endorphins get going from having fun and social interactions and being part of a festive occasion. It doesn't need to come from the booze, and nobody was hungover the next morning. By the way,
0: yeah, you can go to your boot camp workout in the morning the next day. Yes, feel good about yourself. I wanna take this back to the workplace because in the workplace, so much of our interactions, our social interactions, you know, outside of sitting at our desk or sitting in meetings and doing the work involves alcohol. We have happy hours, we do you know, cocktail events, we do holiday parties, we go out on, you know, it's Chicago, you go out in the summer for a boat cruise or something like that. There's there's often oftentimes there's beer there. Even if you're doing like a brunch, there's often Some kind of alcohol there. What are the ways that you see companies starting to move with events that maybe either minimize the alcohol or take it away completely?
1: What I have found works the best and what I've seen good success with is based on the idea of substitution. You know, that diet, eat this, not that. Well, to only take alcohol out of a situation leaves a vacuum. And nature abhors a vacuum. So what I have found is events that are activity-based rather than drinking-based seem to go over better, whether you're going to Top Golf and having an outing that way, or you're staging a softball game, or you're doing something, even bowling. Now, I know that alcohol can be part of any of those situations, but it doesn't have to be. It's not the main focus of what's going on. So substituting an activity, something physical that people are doing together rather than sitting and talking only seems to be a great way to substitute for a drinking-based get-together.
0: I love that. I'm a big activity guy. Like my wife, when we met... I think was a little blown away when she would come over to our house she'd be like man you are all always doing something like we're just very activity based but not everybody is and in fact activities make some people uncomfortable because it puts them on the spot maybe they're not athletic maybe they aren't quite as in shape as they want to be you know maybe I don't know, maybe they have some restriction I don't know but I I've noticed that people get uncomfortable when you ask them to go do some kind of activity where they have to perform in some way. How do you, do you coach your clients through that and how to maybe step out and start to get more comfortable living without alcohol in that way and and putting themselves out there? I don't think any, not everybody's going to get to blue haired wigs, uh, dancing around at your birthday party, but, but I think it is worth the conversation to talk about how we encourage people to sort of try new things and step out there, even if they may feel a little exposed?
1: Again, it goes to short-term discomfort versus long-term pain. And what I coach people to do is to realize that they are okay in every single moment. You know how people say, well, it's going to be okay. And I always step in and push back and say, it's actually okay right now. It's actually okay right now. I went through three miscarriages alcohol free. And my husband and I lived in Chicago, and I was going to Northwestern Memorial Hospital, you know, just off of Michigan Avenue. And he would say to me, Are you okay? And I would say, I can make it to the next traffic light, and then ask me again. But you break any discomfort down into 20-second increments and you're really kind of okay through the whole thing. And so that's what I ask people to consider, to experiment with. Like none of this is dogmatic or pedantic or rule-based or you should do this. It's an invitation to decide to experiment with breaking any uncomfortable experience down into manageable enough increments that they're manageable, that they're doable.
0: Yeah, I like that. I'm glad you said that there at the end, where it's an invitation to come and and try these things. Because it is, again, alcohol is such an interesting thing. You start talking about it and it goes to, oh, well, you're no fun, or oh, well, you're just gonna try to tell me I need to cut all of this out, or it it just swings to a very emotional reaction when in reality, you know, what we're talking about here is is really an invitation to people who wanna learn more or who are thinking about cutting alcohol out for even just a short period of time.
1: I hope sincerely that I do not come across as being judgmental or punishing. There's no room for shame or remorse or punishment in experimenting with what life can be without alcohol or without whatever you're doing to cope with your day-to-day anxiety and stress that may not be serving you. It is an invitation to come and experiment. And if at the end of the experiment, it's not better, why bother? Really, why bother? If it weren't better for me, alcohol-free, why bother?
0: We have talked about a few of the hangups that people have when they are thinking about making this type of a decision or doing this type of an experiment. I like that better, doing it as an experiment rather than making a decision, because the decision seems so final. whereas. It's pretty easy to run an experiment and see how you feel. So people who are considering this experiment, are there any other hangups that you see that we haven't talked about?
1: So the other hangup that I see happening for people is they think it's forever. So when I first gave up alcohol, I remember saying, but what am I going to drink at my wedding? And my friends saying to me, are you dating anybody, let alone engaged? No, no, I wasn't dating anybody. And so I was so far projecting in the future that it seemed daunting. And so this combination of, I welcome you into an experiment for seven days, 30 days, and I want you to make a 100% commitment to being alcohol-free for that period of time And let's make up some experiences that I'm going to invite you to have. And if it isn't better, tell me and I'll make up some more. And if those aren't better, then maybe you're happier drinking and maybe that's okay for you. No judgment, whatever, and not a forever decision. Any others? No, I think that's it.
0: Those are the ones we cover the big ones. Okay. I just want to make sure because one of the things I like to do as I'm conducting these interviews is just think about like, what would the naysayer say, you know, or what's the little voice in somebody's head that's going, yeah, but you know, cause we all have that little voice in our head and it's really easy when you hear something that, that goes against what you want to do, you know? Let me, let me give
1: you one more in that case. Okay. Okay. So that, yeah, but I did a lot of, and I see a lot of, yeah, but I'm not as bad as she is. I'm not as bad as he is. So I've got to be okay. And it comes back to does the way you're drinking serve you in the long term and does it fit your vision of the kind of person you want to be? No matter whether you're with somebody that's drinking 10 martinis and you're only drinking two, question is, is it working for you? And is it in keeping with the way you want to take care of your body? Right. So I see a lot of people doing detoxing and Green juices and yoga, and then they go out and they drink two bottles of wine, and it's like all that stuff you're doing for your personal growth isn't going to stick if you're undoing it with the way that you're consuming alcohol.
0: That that is a good one. I'm 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 glad you brought that up. And i I was going to say I, I like Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art. Are you familiar with that one?
1: Oh my god, I love that book.
0: Yeah, it's uh. Sitting up on this shelf behind me, along with like four others that I just go back to over and over and over again. And just so for those who haven't read the book, he talks about resistance with a capital R being this force that tries to slow you down whenever you're trying to do anything meaningful in the world. In his case, he's a writer, but it could be, you know, anything raising a family, being a good mother, building a business, being a salesperson, whatever. And I just think with alcohol, especially and with a number of other vices, you know, that resistance will get sneaky and it'll put a bunch of doubt in your head that no, you shouldn't be doing this or you don't need to do this or you're not as bad as the other person. And, you know, I think to recognize it as resistance is important and, and helps you move through it.
1: The other thing that he talks about that I quote a lot is he talks about the slang words that we use for getting drunk as being destructive terms annihilated smashed hammered wasted and what he talks about and what i've put that together with is this idea that we go through life wearing these upside down fish bowls on our heads and like I can see through my fishbowl and I can see you, but reflected back to me is me. All of my ideas and fears and stereotypes and judgments are all like I see all of that superimposed on my image of you. And what I putting these two images together, being annihilated takes that fishbowl off, and I can be. At peace and free, at least temporarily. What being alcohol free has to do for me is it has to get rid of that fishbowl and I have to feel connected and free, or I'm not going to want to be alcohol free long term. I think we're all longing for that release from all of these thoughts we have swirling around in our heads all the time. And getting annihilated does that. And so does being alcohol-free if you learn how to do that without being drunk.
0: And, And I have just found that the more positive things I have going on in my life, the less I'm drawn to the negative things.
1: Well, it's a spiritual law that what you think on grows. And so if you're focusing on positive growth, Great gratitude, beauty, love, if you focus on those things, they will grow in your consciousness and they'll grow in your life. And if you're totally focused on how you're insufficient or blaming people or being angry all the time... That stuff is going to get bigger as well, and and you get to choose. And it takes discipline. It takes vigilance to keep your brain focused on the things that you know are good for you longer term.
0: So, actually, before we hit record on this, you had you we were talking about living through fear and how so many people live through fear, and I think that's kind of what you're talking about with the fishbowl. Is we see ourselves back, and we're 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 afraid that what we see isn't good enough. And so we want to turn that voice off. We want to disguise that in some way. And we want to be able to go out in the world without that fear of those insecurities. What, what have you developed? And, and how do you coach your clients through that fear to get to a place of more abundance and acceptance?
1: It's such a great question. What I have found is Meditation is such an essential tool. I've had a meditation practice since 1993. And what I find is people say, Oh, I'm not good at meditating. All you have to do is watch your breath for 30 seconds and you're good at meditating. Like, you don't have to be in full lotus. You don't need to have candles. You don't need to dedicate an hour. Like, seriously, 30 seconds of watching your breathing and noticing all the thoughts that flood in. That is an awesome meditator if a person can do that. What I find with habitual practice of meditation is that it disengages me from all of those ideas that are floating inside my fishbowl. And what I help women do is to identify those old stories that are usually about feeling inadequate in some way And to replace them with spiritual principles, pretty anodyne values like honesty, compassion, forgiveness, patience, tolerance, kindness to myself and to others, right? And every woman, because of our idiosyncratic makeup, the spiritual antidote to feeling insignificant or not sufficient is very unique to each person. But it's again that eat this, not that, but on a spiritual level, right? So every time I find myself feeling like, oh my God, I'm not enough, or it's twin sister, wow, I am way the heck too much. (laughs) Therefore, people aren't engaging with me. People aren't engaging with me. Something must be wrong with me. For me, the antidote is honesty. Like, let's be really true. Let's be really honest about what's going on here. It's allowing people to have their own experiences. That what's go way what you're interacting with me has so little to do with me and has so much to do with you, and compassion for the whole thing. Like those three things are a great antidote for me, and so meditating number one, so I can get free of the grip of those stories. And then secondly, this ability to see my operating old story, right, and then create an antidote to layer on top of that. It's focusing on when I practice that well, because when I'm doing it well, and I, I say, gosh, I really feel great about what I did there, how I handled that, that's going to continue to grow. And so I also give women a way to track their positive progress because so many times we're whipping ourselves because we did something wrong. Well, I'd much rather be giving somebody a pat on the back for doing something right.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I love that. And I, as you were talking, I just it just never ceases to amaze me how universal and simple these things are. I mean, I've I've had guests on here talking about meditation before I was listening to a podcast this morning talking about meditation, like the ability to be present in the moment and aware of your thoughts so you can choose your actions. Like that's what meditation allows you to do. And there's just no downside <laughs> to practicing that. I I don't have a steady meditation practice, which is just absurd at this point. How many times I've heard this message, but it, you know, just the importance of that. And then on the other hand, and you've talked about it a few times, but defining who you want to be and the way you want to live your life is so important and helps you make clear and concise decisions because you knew that you wanted to be a good mother. You were able to wake up that morning, see the incongruity. And make a decision to make a change. You know, that's, that's what put it together. And I've had guests on here, most notably Chet Scott, who runs a leadership development group that I work with. Actually had a group session with them this morning and he talks about building a strong core and really knowing who you are, defining your beliefs, your values, your, your loves in life, you know, that kind of a thing and how that helps you then operate and make decisions throughout your day. So one, to be aware in the moment and then two, to be really defined in where you want to go, like those two together are just such a powerful force for living a great life.
1: There's a psychologist whose name is Martin Seligman. He's the father of positive psychology. And he and colleagues did research about 13 years ago that proves that our sense of our ideal selves in the future is actually more powerful than anything that has happened in our past. Your sense of your ideal future self is actually more powerful than anything in the past. And if it's not, you probably don't have a compelling and clear enough picture of who you are in the future. So that's one thing that I help the women in my programs. That's one thing I help them do is to get very, very specific about who that ideal self is. And are they married to it for the rest of their life? No, experiment with it. And if moving towards that makes you happy, great. And if it doesn't, let's make up a new one. Let's edit it, yeah. So that sense of my ideal self, having that crystallized is so incredibly powerful.
0: I love that. I love it. And that makes sense to me because yes, the things that have happened to you can be a drag on you and and leave you with some baggage and some trauma, but it it really is nothing if you have a positive view of where you want to go because all of the options are still available to you from there. You can always make better choices going forward and move on a better path, and that's just such a it's so much more powerful because it hasn't yet happened, you know it you can still create it so that that makes sense to me for sure and
1: O'Brien, I'm going to say to you. I'm going to challenge you and invite you to experiment for seven days. Seriously, simply watch your breath for 30 seconds. Set a timer and watch your breath for 30 seconds. What I found with developing a meditation practice is the habit is more important than the duration of the time that you spend. So, literally, thirty seconds, which is such a ridiculously infinitesimal amount of time that it doesn't get your amygdala all fired up and freaking out, like who has twenty minutes to sit and meditate? That's too long, thirty seconds. I can do that
0: yeah, well, and I know we're we're book dropping here, but i'll I'll do one more, which is atomic habits, which where he talks about it's not so much about. The habit formation and doing a set amount of the thing. It's about becoming the type of person who does that type of thing. And there's a great story in there about a guy who got, I think he lost again, lost, I don't know what it was, 75 or 100 pounds or something like that, totally transformed his life. And he started by going to the gym five minutes a day, like only five minutes. He would walk in, change go out, do five minutes of an exercise, get in the car and go home. But he did it (laughs) every day. And he just made sure that he did it every single day. And he became the kind of person that worked out every day. So I, I buy into that. I have no excuse and I will accept your challenge for the next seven days. I will accept your, I'm sorry. I will accept your invitation. Okay. This is a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate this. Where can people find you and your program if they want to explore these conversations?
1: Well, I've put together just for your listeners, 10 ways to get in flow rather than in fear. And so you can find that at juicyaf.life forward slash flow.
0: I love that. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. And for anyone who hasn't put it together yet, Juicy AF is juicy alcohol free.
1: Oh, it can uh, mean whatever you want. Or but yes, it, could it mean also means the other alcohol one. Free. It could mean the other one too.
0: <laughs> we, uh, yes, we, we had a good laugh about that when we were doing our prep. Kay, thank you so much. You know, uh, actually, one other question I wanted to ask you because you only work with women, where would you direct men if they want to explore these topics or may may need a little help going down this path?
1: I would encourage guys to check out online Zoom-based AA meetings. It's not what you think it's going to be, and you can hide. You don't have to turn on your video. You can make up a different screen name. And I would just encourage you to go and try six different meetings and see how it lands with you.
0: All right. Yeah, and I like that of trying several different meetings because I know I have some friends who are very regular AA members and are very strong believers and advocates of that community. And I have talked to them about, you know, oh yeah, this meeting wasn't really for me, but I, you know, went over to this meeting and, you know, everything, everything runs a little bit differently. So would encourage anybody out there who maybe feels like they have a problem or who's just curious to accept Kay's invitation and try it out for a period of time. See how you feel. Hope you all feel great, Kay. Thank you for taking the time and uh, and being such a wonderful guest.
1: This was a great conversation. Thank you so much, O'Brien.
0: Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.